God imposes perfect justice on self-righteous sinners, but offers grace and forgiveness to sinners who repent. God's forgiveness should motivate us to live holy lives. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Students, if you would open your Bibles to John uh, chapter 8, John 8. Uh, as you know, we're in a study of the Gospel of John for the last several months. John uh, wrote his Gospel to really accomplish two things, which he said in the last chapter. First of all, he wrote his Gospel to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, deity, come in the flesh. And second, to persuade those who read his Gospel to place their faith in Christ and so uh, when they place their faith in Christ to forgive their sins, they can have eternal life uh, relationship with God in heaven. That's the point. And to that extent, John is marshalling evidence, uh, signs, and sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ, works and words to demonstrate that reality, to seek to persuade those who read to exercise faith and experience eternal life. Today we're going to be studying uh, the first 11 verses of chapter John 8. Now, you need to know, in your Bible, you'll probably see this passage footnoted or bracketed. That's because the earliest manuscripts we have of John's Gospel do not contain this section. As a matter of fact, we don't have manuscripts till after probably four or 500 A.D. where this section is. As a result of that, a question mark, they're bracketed and footnoted. These verses do appear in later manuscripts, so it's highly likely that this story was passed on by oral tradition and then added later uh, into Scripture, but we don't know by whom or when. Some Christian scholars believe that the story itself was historical, but don't necessarily believe that it belongs in John's Gospel, because in some early manuscripts it appears in Luke and in a variety of places in John, not necessarily in this section. However, the story is very consistent with Scripture. It is very consistent with the gracious ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, so we're going to study it today. If you would start in uh, the last verse of chapter 7, begins the bracketed section. It says, everyone went to his own home, verse eight, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Now, it's an interesting parenthetical, just side note here, everybody went to their own home. Remember that Jesus had said in the Synoptic Gospels on more than one occasion, the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. He didn't have a, a home base. So we spent the night on the Mount of Olives uh, under the stars, which he had done more than once and will continue to do so, especially uh, the last week. So early in the morning, he goes into the temple, which as you know is right next door to the Mount of Olives. You go through the book Kidron, and a crowd presses in on him, uh, ready to be taught. Interesting, uh, they didn't have any trouble getting out of bed. They adjusted their schedules to make themselves available for what God had to say to them, which is a pretty good model for us. If God uh, was going to come to earth at 11 o'clock some day at a certain location, I expect that many, many people would adjust their schedules to be available. And yet God the Holy Spirit is where? Here, now, all the time, so we should always make ourselves available to hear his word. And at our stage of life, one of the best times to listen to him is about two in the morning when you can't sleep. That's just a dynamite time to pray because you can't sleep anyway, right? See, why not talk to God about what's keeping you awake? Just the thought, right? Better than talking to yourself because counsel from yourself at 2 a.m. is reliably foolish. Counsel from the Holy Spirit at 2 a.m. can change your life. And that's when it's quiet enough you can escuche, you know, you can actually hear what he says. So Luke 12 records an occasion where Jesus taught with such divine authority and, and supernatural clarity that it says, quote, 
many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another. Now that is a desire to hear the word of the Lord, right? Today, the only time we see that is in concerts where people step on each other to get close to the stage, right? It's interesting what our culture worships as opposed to what we should be worshiping. So in the middle of Jesus teaching in the temple early in the morning, he is interrupted by an interrogation. Look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Here's the principle. All of us have been caught in sin and rightly stand condemned by God's law. All of us have been caught in sin and rightly stand condemned by God's law. So they interrupt Jesus' teaching. He's got a great crowd inside the temple. And they drag a woman, probably a teenager, probably barely clothed, into the temple and force her to stand in front of Jesus and in front of this large crowd he's teaching. It's humiliating uh, to be accused uh, and judged on that basis. And they use the term rabbi, which is a term of respect, which means teacher. Now, they're hypocritical to the core. They don't respect him. They're planning to kill him, but they go through the motions, you know, rabbi, teacher. And they charge this woman with adultery. And they claim that she was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, that could be a death penalty case. So she's undoubtedly terrified as well as humiliated. Now, in order for you to bring a charge in a Jewish court that is of this magnitude, it means you have to have at least two witnesses to document the charges. The Mosaic Law clearly commanded no one is to be put to death on the basis of the testimony of only one witness. You have to have at least two witnesses. And Jewish law required that these two witnesses had to actually see the couple engaged in the act, right? And in the capital case, at least two impartial witnesses, without any skin in the game here, had to see the same thing at the same time in each other's presence. So there could be visual collaboration that, in fact, what was being reported on actually was true according to two sets of eyes, not just one set of eyes. Now, this is the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles goes on for seven days, and there's an eighth day, the great day of the feast. We talked about that last week, and it's designed to celebrate and commemorate God's faithfulness in leading Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. So there's a large crowd still in town because many, many people came throughout Israel and from even out of the nation to celebrate the three feasts, Passover uh, among them. And, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles was the big celebration. Now, just a couple of observations. People committing adultery usually make attempts to conceal what they're doing. Makes sense, right? So there were no video cameras in that day. So for the scribes and Pharisees to be able to so conveniently discover someone in the act sounds like a setup. Actually, it's pretty clear that's the setup. They hated Jesus, and it's highly likely the Pharisees staged this event. They used a willing man as an accomplice who agreed to the adultery for the express purpose of using this woman to trap Jesus. Now, the Pharisees actually misquoted Moses when they come to Jesus and said that he commanded that such women uh, be stoned to death. What God actually commanded through Moses was written in Leviticus 20, verse 10. And it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, even who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So the law specifies that both man and woman were to be tried and then both put to death. Now, for this to be a legitimate trial today, both parties need to be present, which, of course, begs the question, where is the man? Why is only the woman on trial, right? You cannot commit adultery alone, Just pretty obvious, right? If, if they had a man as their accomplice, which it seems likely they did, it seems that they had prearranged to let him go, and drag the woman into Jesus' presence 
for the specific purpose of trapping Jesus. Now, they practice certainly a double standard here, prosecute the woman for her sin, excuse the man for his sin. Double standards, by definition, are sins in themselves. You've heard the old phrase, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Guess what? There's no female sin or no male sin. If it's sin, it's sin for everybody across the board. So they're obviously involved in a double standard. Now, understand that for the Pharisees, adultery wasn't the issue. The woman wasn't the issue. Sin wasn't the issue. They didn't care about her or her sin at all. The whole point was to trap Jesus so they can accuse, attack, and discredit him. She was just collateral damage. Here's what was motivating them. Christ had been ministering now. He's about six months from the cross. He's been ministering for about three years. He's been doing vast numbers of miracles, hundreds upon hundreds. He's practically emptied out every hospital in northern Israel. He's been healing the sick. He demonstrates power over nature, power over demons, and the crowds are following him. And the crowds are following him, and they're leaving the Pharisees. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees were the upper crust, especially the Sadducees, of society. And they were used to having religious domination and having people say rabbi and you know, have all the accolades that came from that. So Jesus was drawing crowds away from them. And he was furthermore confronting them about their sin of hypocrisy. If the crowds follow Jesus in numbers, the Pharisees feared, rightfully so, that the crowd might demand to crown Christ king. Now, if Christ is crowned political king over Israel, what happens to their positions? What happens to their power? What happens to their crowd accolades? Well, they go away. And so they needed to take Jesus out in order to maintain their own political religious positions of superiority. So they plan on trying to trap Jesus by using the Mosaic Law, which is something they considered themselves to be experts in. Matter of fact, they were experts in the Mosaic Law. They didn't believe most of the prophets or the history, but they absolutely did buy the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's pretty clear here they don't believe that Jesus is God. If they did, they would understand that you were trying to trap the God who gave the scriptures to Moses. You want to play chess with Jesus? Probably not a good idea, right? You see five, six moves ahead. He sees infinity ahead, right? Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees claimed to follow Moses, who gave them the law. What they forgot was that Moses interceded with God on more than one occasion to spare the nation from judgment. Remember when they came out of Egypt... Uh, they were at the foot of the mountain, and Moses went up to the top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he was gone for 40 days, and in that period of time, Aaron made them a gold bull calf, and they were worshiping and taking their clothes off and having an orgy, and God said, go down, I'm taking them out, all of them, and I'm going to make Moses of you a great nation. We're starting over. That was pretty heady stuff if you're Moses going, well, forget about Jacob, we're going to have a nation named after me, and Moses said, Lord, 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 honor your name. What are the nations going to think if you can't bring Israel into the promised land? You're greater than this nation's sin. And he pleaded with God to forgive them. He actually said, blot me out of your book of life and forgive them instead. That's a type of Christ, uh, if you will, sacrifice for the benefit of the nation. And that, of course, is what Jesus actually did. Did lay down his life for the sins of the world. So these Pharisees claim to follow Moses, but they don't have any compassion of Moses. They didn't have any mercy like Moses did. And even worse, the Pharisees are arrogant enough to think that they can trap the eternal Son of God, which is amazing to me. The very thought that a creature could outsmart the Creator, that's what we call stuck on stupid, spiritually stupid. <laughs> Romans 1 tells us that when you de demand to worship yourself and refuse to worship God as God, you become foolish. We would say stupid, right? Doing the same thing over and over again without adequate results. It is folly to do that. Now, 
that's the Pharisees. When you look at the other person in this drama, the woman, you can't really help but feel compassion for her in a lot of ways. Compassion is the opposite of contempt. Com, C-O-M, means uh, with. Passio means to feel. So compassion or empathy means to feel with, right? People with empathy, when someone's hurting, they hurt with them. They understand a little bit about the suffering and the pain and sorrow they're going through. And we certainly feel that with her. She certainly is a sinner. She certainly has been documented to be in adultery. But they're publicly humiliating her, and they're planning on executing her in order to accomplish their agenda of getting to Jesus. Now, we should be able to relate to this woman because like her, what? We are all sinners, right? You may not be guilty of her sin, but you are guilty of sin. Every one of us are. And we are, of course, called to imitate God by showing compassion as he does. So on the other hand, the scribes and Pharisees are proud of their morality, proud of their virtue, and they were the original virtue signalers. We talk about people that signal virtue. The Pharisees were first, right? They took pride in their righteousness, um, and they could only feel good about themselves if they measured their goodness according to their own rules. You know, and we do that today, right? People say, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You're measuring your standard of goodness by your own measuring stick. God says, no, 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 you measure by my measuring stick because I am the standard of righteousness that you have to live up to. And, of course, the Pharisees showed contempt for anybody that didn't obey their rules. And as we will see, their standard of measure was woefully inadequate, and God is, Jesus is God, and he's going to call them out on it. Look at verse 6. They, the scribes and Pharisees, said this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, quote, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Here's the principle. Ultimately, only Jesus is qualified to judge people. Ultimately, only Jesus is qualified to judge people. Now here's the trap the horns of the dilemma that the scribes and Pharisees were hoping to impale Jesus upon. Israel was currently under Roman rule and had been since 163, of course, when Rome or 168 took over. Uh, So they were under Roman occupation. There were Roman soldiers in the country. And Rome allowed a certain amount of home rule. In other words, if they captured a country, they would give that nation certain rights to operate according to their own rules. Now, it was all subject to Roman approval, but they gave them a certain degree of that. However, no nation under Roman rule was allowed to impose capital punishment. Rome reserved the right to impose capital punishment themselves. That's why the Sanhedrin had to go to Pontius Pilate and get approval and have Rome actually do the execution of Jesus because the Jews did not have the right at that time under Roman occupation to impose capital punishment. And Rome, by the way, did not prescribe capital punishment for adultery. Did not. The law of Moses did prescribe the death penalty for adultery. So whose law is Jesus going to follow? Now Jesus said, he already said in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus supported the law of God. Obviously, he wrote the book, which was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. So here's where the the scribes and Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus said, stoner, the law of Moses said to stoner, they'll first of all go to Pontius Pilate, and they'll claim that Jesus is an insurrectionist. He's fomenting rebellion against Rome. He's actually prescribing capital punishment without Roman authorization. Furthermore, if Jesus said, well, the law says stoner, stoner, then he will demonstrate to the world that, in fact, he's not a friend of sinners, like he claimed to be. I mean, Jesus had a reputation, what? Being a friend of tax gatherers and prostitutes and the downtrodden of the culture. He claimed that he came to save not the righteous, but but he came to save sinners, right? So if he says to stoner, he's repudiating his own claim that says he's merciful. 
And he's thrown her under the bus of judgment. And of course, then they will ask him, well, how come you had dinner with the prostitutes and those thieves we call tax gatherers? How come you didn't stone them as well? So you're a hypocrite. You're not consistent. So that was the one horn of the dilemma if he says to stone her. On the other hand, if Jesus says, don't stone her, we're merciful. They will go to the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling, legislative, political, judicial ruling body of, of, the, of the state of, of Israel. They'll go to the Sanhedrin and claim that Jesus has broken the law of Moses. Because Moses says, stone adulterers, and Jesus now said, no, don't stone adulterers. So Jesus is teaching people to violate the law of Moses. And therefore, he's disqualified to teach the people. He doesn't follow the Mosaic law himself. Since Jesus breaks God's law as given by Moses, his claim that he came from God, his claim to be God is a lie. And therefore, he should be executed for claiming to be God when he's not. So they wanted to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he says, stoner, you're in deep trouble. If he says, don't stoner, you're in deep trouble. They thought they were clever. Either way he went, he would be trapped, and they could accuse him, discredit his ministry, and reduce him to meaninglessness. So it reveals something fascinating. This dilemma that they're trying to trap Jesus in reveals the most profound problem in the universe. How does holy God harmonize his perfect justice with grace and mercy? How does holy God harmonize his perfect justice with grace and mercy? See, if God is perfectly just, then this woman must die for her sins. And every sinner who ever lived must die for their sins as well. If God is a God of love, of grace, and forgiveness, and mercy, how is justice served? So the dilemma was already perfectly stated by God himself in Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, 6 says, Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving and kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers, on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Here's the principle. God imposes perfect justice upon self-righteous sinners. God imposes perfect justice on self-righteous sinners, but offers grace and forgiveness to sinners who repent. God imposes perfect justice upon self-righteous sinners, but offers grace and forgiveness to sinners who repent. So the dilemma is, how does a loving and forgiving God punish sinners? The second dilemma is, on the other hand, how can a holy and just God forgive sinners? Right? That's the dilemma. And the Pharisees loudly accuse Jesus, continue to accuse him, and Jesus bends down and writes on the earth with his finger. He's writing on the ground. And there's been an enormous amount of speculation about what he wrote. Well, we really don't know. Some have speculated that he wrote the specific sins of her accusers. He knew them all, and he was writing their sins on the ground. Maybe that's true. We don't know. Scriptures don't tell us. It is interesting, though, that God wrote the Ten Commandments on tables of stone with his finger, and God the Son, now the New Covenant, is writing with his finger on the earth that he created. Just interesting observation. By the way, this is the only time Scripture ever mentions Jesus writing anything. But the author doesn't see fit to make that a big deal. We should know that. Jesus is acting as if he doesn't hear the charges. They're throwing fingers and throwing words, and he's writing and stooping down, not looking at them. John Calvin writes that he thought that Jesus was shaming the Pharisees by ignoring them and treating them as inconsequential, not paying attention to them. A couple things we can say for pretty sure. By looking down and writing on the ground when they're busy yelling charges, he is doing two things. First, mercifully, he's drawing attention to himself and drawing attention away from this barely clothed teenager 
reducing her humiliation. So one, he's taking attention from the crowd from her onto himself. Secondly, mercifully, he's giving her accusers time to contemplate what they're doing. He's actually giving them time to repent. He's delaying a decision so that they can think through what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they don't think about it. They persist in loudly accusing her, demanding that he choose a side so they can trap him. Now, she is a sinner to be sure, but her accusers, scribes and Pharisees, were sinning against her and against the law of Moses. They were willing to put her to death in order to discredit Jesus, even though they had set up this whole drama. Even worse, these religious leaders were sinning against the sinless Son of God. They were trying to destroy Jesus, and they were using the Scriptures in this woman to do it. They were using Scriptures to judge someone else, not judge themselves. They were self-righteous, proud, religious hypocrites who were willing to commit murder in order to accuse Jesus. And Christ, of course, who God in the flesh is altogether wise, simply responds to them by saying, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Well, we already know that none of them qualify, right? Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no one there was without sin. Jesus is the judge, and they're demanding judgment from him. Make a decision. Make a judgment. He's a perfectly just does. He doesn't deny her guilt. He doesn't deny that her sin is worthy of death. By the way, all sin is worthy of death. Your sin and my sin is worthy of death. That's why Jesus died in our place. Now, in the Old Testament, the guilty could be, and sometimes were, stoned to death. Remember Achan? Joshua is in the land, and God is um, giving them the land. And they are taking Jericho, and the Lord says, everything in Jericho is devoted to me. All the wealth you get out of Jericho for capturing, you bring it to the tabernacle, and it's going to be an offering to God who gave you the victory by knocking down the walls, probably with a localized earthquake. Well, there's a guy named Achan, and he got greedy, and he saw gold, silver, and expensive clothing, and he stole it in direct disobedience to God's command, hid it in his tent, he was found out, and he was taken outside the camp and stoned to death by the direct command of God to Joshua. So sin does result in death, right? Jesus, in fact, upheld the law of Moses. He said, stoner. But then he gave the qualifying conditions. The executioners had to meet the qualifying conditions before they could pick up a rock and throw a matter, and that is they had to be without sin first. By the way, Jesus is not saying there's no human court that cannot pass judgment unless every judge is sinless. If that's the case, there would be no cases adjudicated because all humans are sinners, including judges. Earlier, Jesus had given the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he had given us rules and principles to operate with regarding human judgment. Not divine judgment, human judgment. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Verse 2, 4. In the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's the principle. It's long. I'm going to repeat it. All human judgment of sin must begin with personal repentance. All human judgment of sin must begin with personal repentance. Only when I am cleansed by Jesus will I be able to help a fellow sinner and not harm them. All human judgment of sin must begin with personal repentance. Only when I am cleansed by Jesus will I be able to help a fellow sinner 
and not harm them. See, the issue with having a log in your own eye means you are a hypocrite because you have sin in your own life that you are not confessing, not dealing with, not letting the Lord cleanse you from, and we, with uncleansed sin, are poking at our brothers and saying, you're in sin and you're doing this and we're self-righteous and we're on our hobby horse and we're, right, judging them by our standards because we have unconfessed sin in our life. And Jesus says, stop it. You can't see clearly to help your brother or sister until I cleanse your heart and take the log out of your own eyes so you can see clearly. Now, the hypocritical Pharisees clearly are the ones with the log in their eye. They're prosecuting a woman for adultery, attacking Jesus, and ignoring the sin in their own lives. And the Bible tells us when someone has fallen into sin, we are commanded to help restore them, but how we are helped and restore them is found in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... That means forgiven, cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So if you want to help restore someone's broken relationship with God, you have to be in a right relationship with God yourself. It means you first have to confess and repent of your own sin. Then and only then are you qualified to come alongside your brother or sister with a spirit of humility and a spirit of gentleness, and a spirit of restoring their relationship to the Lord, not judging them with self-righteous judgments. Now, the Pharisees are not trying to restore this woman. They're trying to destroy her, trying to kill her, right? Earlier, Jesus had confronted the scribes and Pharisees on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20. He's talking to the crowds at large. By the way, this is a front-hand slap in the face to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it said, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's basically saying the self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees will not get them into heaven, period. Your righteousness better be better than their human self-righteousness. He's talking about the righteousness that he will give them. It seems that the very scribes and Pharisees who were planning to kill this woman for the sin of adultery were not free from adultery themselves, at least by God's standards, right? None of them could claim that they had never looked at a woman with lust. Under Jesus' definition, therefore, all of them had at least committed adultery in their hearts and were disqualified to pass judgment on this woman because they refused what? To confess their sins and be healed and be forgiven. They had unforgiven sin. Just a rule of thumb. Don't try and help someone with their sin if you have unrepented of sin in your own life. Confess your own sin so that the Lord can wash you and make you clean and then use you as a tool to restore other people. Now, Another reason why the Pharisees were absolutely in sin and absolutely not competent impartial judges is they had prearranged for this adultery to take place so they could catch her in it, right? With their male accomplice. So they obviously were not impartial. Now Jesus laid down the qualification. Let's go over it again. What does it say? He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Tom Constable notes, quote, they had asked Jesus to pass judgment. And now he was exercising his rightful function as judge of mankind. Instead of passing judgment on the woman, he was passing judgment on her judges. Jesus' reply put the dilemma back on his accusers' shoulders. If they did stone this woman, they were claiming that they had not sinned. If they did not stone her, they would be admitting that they had sinned. Jesus now took the place not only of her judge, but her defense attorney. So they demanded that Jesus judge her, and now Jesus is judging them. See, if they threw stones at her after what Jesus said, the listening crowd knows that they are claiming to be sin-free. Jesus said, you're without sin, cast the first stone. So if they throw stones, they're saying, I'm without sin. By the way, 
the crowd knows that they're not without sin, right? So they would brand them as hypocrites, and the crowds would disappear from following them even faster, so they can't stone her, and they know that. Even worse, if they did throw rocks, it would reveal them as malicious witnesses who had prearranged for this adultery to occur. That means they could be then stoned in return. But if they drop their stones, they're saying, we have sin. We are sinners. Jesus has been telling them, your self-righteousness is not getting you to heaven. You're a sinner. You need a savior. So they dropped their stones. They admitted we're guilty sinners who need a savior, but they refused Christ's offer of salvation. Verse 8. Again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, being convicted by their conscience, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Here's the principle. God's forgiveness should motivate us to live holy lives. God's forgiveness should motivate us to live holy lives. So Jesus is the judge. She is the defendant. The scribes and Pharisees are the plaintiffs. And after Jesus gave the criteria that was required for them to execute judgment, he bent down and wrote on the ground a second time. Now, it became pretty clear that none of her accusers were qualified to execute her since they were all sinners themselves, right? And our, words, our Lord's words, interestingly, cause their conscience to be convicted. I think this is the only time in Scripture where it reveals that the scribes and Pharisees actually had a convicted conscience and acted on it. They demanded to judge others by the law. They were now being judged by the very law that they put their faith in. See, the problem with the law is that it reveals sin, but it can't offer grace or forgiveness. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And Jesus is God, and as he looked at the crowd of accusers, he knew every sin in their hearts. All of them. I don't know if they believed that, but he called them out more than once saying, I know what you're thinking, right? And he did. So the accusers dropped their stones and walked away one by one. It says, beginning with the older ones and then going down to the younger ones. Now, I don't know it's because the older ones had the most sins to feel guilty over, or maybe time and scar tissue and gray hair tenderizes your conscience. I don't know that. Sometimes it certainly does not. Maybe they finally figured out that publicly murdering somebody in front of a crowd over committing adultery when they were sinners themselves was really not a very wise choice. Just a thought. Here's what's stunning. They're all convicted of sin. They all acknowledge they're sinners because they drop their stones and leave. None of them come to Jesus for forgiveness. None of them. They don't walk to Jesus. They walk away from Christ. None of them repent. For three years now, they've heard him offer forgiveness because he's God. He's Messiah. He's fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies in front of their very eyes, and they believed Old Testament prophecies, and they know they're sinners. They still choose to reject his offer of salvation and leave him. They refuse to face the reality of their own sin, and therefore they remain in sin. Jesus is left alone with the accused woman. All her accusers have departed. And she, interestingly enough, does not choose to leave him. She doesn't walk out with them. She doesn't run away from her judge in the scrutiny of the watching crowd. She's convicted of sin, but she stays by Jesus. And Jesus looks up and says, woman. That was, by the way, a term of respect. He called his own mother Mary. He said, woman. It's a term of respect. And he said, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. Since her accusers had departed... There was no human prosecution left, so this was case dismissed, right? However, begs a question. What about a sin of adultery? That apparently was a real sin, took place. The terms of execution were, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone against her. 
Well, was there anybody in the room who was without sin? Jesus Christ is without sin. He's the only one qualified to throw a stone at her was Christ. And by the way, he could have executed her with perfect justification because her sin was worthy of death under God's law. If God sent every human being ever created in his image to hell, he would be perfectly just because that's justice. The soul that sins shall die. You do the crime, you do the time. That's perfect justice. When people say, I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to ask for justice, I don't know what they're talking about. If, you're, if God is perfectly just and there is no mercy, you go into hell. Deservedly so, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus never denied her sin. And by the way, he never de denies our sin either. All sin is worthy of death under God's law. But Jesus, who is God, is divine. He shows her mercy and not judgment. I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. You know, we don't hear her verbally repent, although her physical stance next to the Lord tells us some things, but Jesus knows her heart. Jesus delights to show grace to undeserving sinners. Everyone in this room is an undeserving sinner. And we have been shown the grace of God, even though we deserve to die. Jesus has the sovereign right to show mercy to whoever he chooses. This is one of the most astonishing verses in Scripture. Exodus 33, 19, God is talking to Moses and he said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. God is unrestrained. He is not obligated. He is not bound by anything outside himself. Jesus offers both grace and truth to the sinner. John 1.17, we covered this several months ago, says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say to her? He gave her grace first, and he said what? Neither do I condemn you. That's grace, unmerited favor. You deserve to die, neither do I condemn you. Then he gave her truth. Go, sin no more. Right? Grace first, then truth. Jesus didn't minimize her sin. He forgave her sin. And then he commanded her to stop sinning. The half-brother of our Lord, James, writes in his book, James 2, the epistle of James 2.13, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is a description of the grace of God. See, Jesus wanted her free from the penalty of sin, which is death. But even more than that, Jesus wanted her free from the power of sin into a saving relationship with himself. And that's true for us, too. Someone who says, well, I've got my fire insurance paid for, I've accepted Christ, but now I'm going to live like I want to live, doesn't understand grace, right? Why would you go swim in a cesspool, right? A latrine, when you could swim in the Caribbean, you know, and you can see 60 feet down to the bottom. I mean, why would you want to do that? It makes no sense. So Jesus had the perfect balance between compassion and confrontation, and we are to have the same thing. Speaking the truth is confrontation. Speaking the truth in love is compassion. What did Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. That's compassion. That's grace. Truth is, go and sin no more. Build a life of holy living based on the fact that you've been forgiven. Is that not God's message to us? We should be motivated to live holy lives because we've been forgiven from judgment. Some have implied, interestingly, that Jesus was unjust here because he didn't keep the law of Moses and Stoner. Truth is, what Jesus did with this woman is the very reason he came to earth to do for the world. John 3.17, right after John 3.16, For God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, right? 1 Timothy 1.15, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? To save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. So the whole point for the incarnation was the atonement. The entire reason for his coming was to lay down his life to pay for your and my sins, for the sins of the world. The mercy and love of God are greater than our sin, which is a wonderful, wonderful news. Romans 5, 20b says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
You know why I have such hope in that? It doesn't matter what sin you commit. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, what? From all sin. That's why we're commanded to confess and repent and turn away because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Jesus gave her grace instead of justice. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He could give her grace and still uphold the law. He could give her grace and still justice. How does that work? He knew that within six months, he was going to go to the cross and pay the penalty for her adultery. Justice was going to be served. God's righteous judgment that sin has to be paid for by death was going to be done perfectly by the substitutionary death of the perfect Lamb of God for the sins of the sinner. Jesus died voluntarily so that God can be perfectly just and pour out his righteous wrath on sin and still be merciful to sinners. Because Jesus came to earth to pay the penalty for our sin and take the wrath of God on himself so that God can forgive us and show us grace and mercy. So perfect justice can be done and perfect mercy and grace can be shown. But for that to work, Jesus has to take the wrath of God so we experience the grace of God. God cannot be gracious to us and still be righteous unless he pours out his righteous wrath on sin on the Son of God. That's how he can do both. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we, the sinner, might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ-likeness. So every time we confess our sin and ask for forgiveness, God forgives us. Some of us confess the same thing over and over again, don't we? Because we keep screwing up in the same way. Hebrews 12 talks about the sin which so easily entangles us. We all have sin that easily entangles us, that we easily fall in. And Satan will come to you and he will say something like, why do you bother confessing? You know you're going to screw up tomorrow anyway. Just live with it. Now that's a lie from hell. Live with your filth because you're just going to get dirty tomorrow. Let me tell you what that's like. It's like, why would I shower today? I'm just going to get dirty tomorrow. Well, you do that for a week, and all of a sudden, 30 feet away, people know you're coming. <laughs> right? That's the same thing. Morally refusing to get out the bar of soap in 1 John 1, 9 and confess your sin and get washed. Yes, you should get washed now. Why? You're going to need to be washed tomorrow, too. That's why we confess sin, in my case, dozens and dozens and dozens of times every day. Because we sin dozens and dozens and dozens of times every day. Mostly up here. You know, somebody drives by and I'm going, man, I could just nuke them. No problem, Brad. Yeah, you know, Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you committed murder. Oh, okay, I need to confess that one, right? But it feels really good to nuke them, you know I mean? That's the flesh talking, right? So this woman is going to stand before Jesus, her judge, at the end of the age, so will you and I. We can rest secure in the sure knowledge that Jesus, our judge, all judgments have been given to the Son, is also Jesus, our Savior, who has already paid for our sin, past, present, and future. And God the Father has already declared everyone who placed faith in Christ not guilty. And on that basis, we can live a life of joy, even though we sin day to day. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. And we should strive by his empowering Holy Spirit to live a life that's worthy of the calling and let the Holy Spirit shape us like Jesus. Okay, let's review and then we'll do a prayer and praise. First principle, all of us have been caught in sin and rightly stand condemned by God's law. Number two, ultimately, only God is qualified to judge people. Number three, 
God imposes perfect justice upon self-righteous sinners, but offers grace and forgiveness to sinners who repent. Now, here's the crazy part. Why would you not want God's grace? Why would you choose His judgment? Because you're deceived, and you want to be deceived. Because you know people that love their sin, and they want to continue to practice their sin. So they're not going to turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus because the enemy has them deceived and they are willfully deceived. They choose it. But the Holy Spirit can bring them new life. One of his jobs is conviction of sin, convincing them their sin. So pray, pray, pray for lost family and friends. Number four, all human judgment of sin must begin with personal repentance. Only when I am cleansed by Jesus will I be able to help a fellow sinner and not harm them. This is once again where continually walking in the light, continually being cleansed by Jesus, then the Holy Spirit can use you as a vessel to accomplish his purpose of restoring other sinners' relationship with him. And lastly, since we've been forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus Christ, we should be living holy lives in light of that. So this narrative gives us a small encapsulated dramatic story that illustrates how God provides perfect justice and perfect grace, and we who identify with this woman because we are all sinners have experienced the grace of God. And that's the story that we need to tell, the truth we need to tell those who God has laid on our hearts. Know that I love you. Next week, read ahead. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.